I went to Taipei City Hall, and here's this foreigner that can't speak Mandarin um, with a liaison translator trying to convince the mayor and his team that they should stick these 30 random devices in their garbage bins <laughs> in City Hall. So it was quite an interesting experience. This is Seeking Startups, a show that gives you an inside look into the minds of ambitious people who are trying to change the world. Learn about what they're building, their personal stories, and invest in the founders you believe in. Now with equity crowdfunding, anyone can invest in early stage private startups. If you're searching for entertaining, educational, and inspirational content about startup investing, this show is for you. I'm your host, Maxim Davis, and today on Seeking Startups, we have Hamoon Karami and Andrea Bulgarelli, the co-founders of Smartbin.io. Hamoon and Andrea are building an autonomous trash bin collecting robot. So basically, they're creating a real-life Wally. With Smartbin.io, they hope to make a greener and more efficient waste and recycling process. But even though Hamoon and Andrea are early into this venture, their entrepreneurial journey start many years before. Tune into this episode and learn how Hamoon's non-traditional journey and Andrea's hardware experience have led them to start Smartbin.io. Hey, I would like to quickly say that everything you hear in this podcast is only for informational and entertainment purposes. This is not financial advice and I'm not endorsing this company. Please do proper due diligence before investing in any startup. Okay, now let's get started. I would like to start by asking you what SmartBin is all about. And when I was looking at your fundraising page, I saw that you're building the real life Wally. And so describe that to me. What what are you building? So we're building a solution for commercial buildings in North America. Um, we're helping them with better managing their waste and recycling indoors. Um, and we're essentially building a solution that takes in waste, um, autonomously manages it um, because the industry is currently facing a large labor shortage. So Wally is uh, this trash bin collecting robot um, that responds to our smart bins when they're full uh, and then takes it from uh, wherever the bins are located to the back of house where it goes through a recycling sorting machine. Essentially, the idea is that waste goes in, recycling goes into these buildings, and then the output is 100% 100% clean uh, recyclables that can go back into the supply chain. Interesting. So you say it's autonomous. So how does the uh, robot know where to go and, and how to get there and, and do that whole process? So the, the robot, yeah, it's, it's an autonomous robot. Uh, we started from a general purpose uh, platform uh, in order to get to our goal as soon as possible. Um, right now, our robot is a commercial robot and it's... Um, back to all the, the features that uh, it go around the, the facilities without hitting people, autonomously navigating from one point to point. Let's kind of go back and get to know more about you two, um, because I think it's important to understand kind of the motives and, and you know, why you're doing this. So, and so let's go all the way back to your childhood. And Hamoun, I'd like to start with you. Um, you were raised in Burlington, Ontario. Um, what was your childhood like? Uh, my childhood was great. <laughs> no, no, no sad stories. Um, I was very fortunate to immigrate to Canada when I was five from Iran. Um, so I spent most of my life in Burlington, Ontario, where I went to school. Um, just a normal standard childhood. Um, really loved the outdoors, really loved playing sports. Um, was always involved in in whatever sports teams I could uh, be a part of. And um, yeah, I, I, I had a great, great childhood. Um, and I think that was, you know, one of the things I was fortunate, fortunate enough to have to be able to do something like start a startup. And so it sounds like you were competitive. Um, I think maybe that's why we were into sports, but more, more in the school aspect. Um, talk about that uh, competitive nature that you had. Yeah. So um, obviously being uh, immigrants to, to Canada, um, Education is very important. Uh, it's one of the biggest reasons why my family brought us here. So um, me and my brother, we used to compete uh, in school who could get the most A's. <laughs> so oftentimes uh, my brother would uh, would beat me, but uh, you know, I caught up in high school um, and I started kicking his butt uh, and, and getting the most A's. And, and to my competitiveness, it's, it's a 
good thing and a bad thing, <laughs> of course. Um, uh, I'm very competitive. Um, I don't like to lose. Uh, and um, I spend a lot of time, obviously, competing in sports, and it's something that I love. Where do you think that comes from? Is it that immigrant uh, mentality of working hard and really trying to grow in, in this new environment? Where do you think that competitive nature comes from? Well, first, I would say it comes from um, my family. So uh, I grew up in a family of seven. So my parents and five kids. Wow. So we were constantly competing in the house <laughs> for for food, for attention, for, you know, the games we would play. It's It was a very competitive environment. Um, and second to that, I would say my competitiveness is just something that's just part of who I am. Um, I always tried to be the best. Um, at whatever I did, even though uh, sometimes it wasn't natural, um, I really uh, dived dived headfirst and uh, did whatever I could to to uh, to be an outstanding uh, athlete. For example, let's talk about your 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 parents specifically. So your dad was an inventor. That's really interesting. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So my dad has a few patents. Uh, he was he kind of ingrained in me the 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 um, idea of always trying to find a better, faster, smarter way of doing things um, from tying my shoes to brushing my teeth. <laughs> so that's something he taught me at a very young age. And I was constantly coming up with these ideas um, uh, and showing them to my, to my dad. Um, and um, oftentimes it was with technology and he would always say, oh, don't, don't think about technology innovations because that's very hard. It's a very difficult mm. challenge to try to accomplish. And obviously, as a as a you know twelve twelve year old, uh, it's it's it would be a challenge. But at this age, obviously, it's a lot more attainable. Um, and my dad, he has, you know, he was always trying to think of these ideas, and he's gone as far as patenting them um, and uh, trying to bring some of his ideas to market. Were you involved with any of that, that kind of ideation, that creation that maybe, you know, sparked your entrepreneurial um, interest later down the road? Uh, we were famous for like having a shark tank slash dragon's den set up at home, you know, where my dad would come up with an idea and we would kind of be the judges and, and, and tell him what we liked about it or what we didn't. Um, but most, most of his ideas, if not all of them were, were his uh, original, original thoughts. Wow. That's a, uh... That's pretty neat. Um, let's move on to Andrea. So you grew up in Italy. Um, I've never been to Italy. So can you tell me about what um, the real Italian uh, lifestyle is? Because I think of, you know, great food, beautiful architecture. But what is it actually like to grow up in Italy? Um, it's obviously pretty different from from U.S. I mean, um, I stayed in U.S. Uh, in Austin for, for a while and, and the way People live there. It's it's quite different from from how, how we do live here. Um, just basically because of the you know the buildings, for example. Here we have a lot of uh, large buildings in the cities, uh, old buildings. So you ended up living in some houses that have hundreds of, of years of history. Wow! And that's cool for one side. On the other side, of course. Uh, could we better have more uh, more space for for a uh, for a baby and for for a child to go around? I mean, don't get me wrong. There are there are of course uh, parks and uh, and green areas, but then you know, as a as a city, Turin offered uh, offered also a lot of uh, concrete. Interesting. Let's talk about your upbringing and some of those hobbies that you had. Because um, I think they give a really good insight into you know what you do today. And so, why did you get into electronics and you know taking things apart? What got you into that whole um, space? Well, I, I don't know actually because um, what uh, was the, the sparkle that uh, made me get into the electronics and the, the mechatronics world? Uh, but I do remember that since I was uh, 10 years old, I guess. Um, I started tearing down electronics. First was, uh, was you know, the, the classical electronic stuff that you have at the house and it's not working anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but then I started asking friends, uh, my parents' friends, 
to give me more electronics to, to tear down. And I have to say that uh, it helped a lot on, on my career as a, as an engineer, because, um, you can learn a lot of, uh, about how did the people that designed that electronics, uh, uh, did, you know, tearing it down. And, and sometimes I, I ended up repairing the stuff a, a lot of times <laughs> I just broke them. So you're definitely a curious child. Um, do you think that's something that, uh, was brought up in your household or was that something that just, you know, is kind of innate to you? I don't know. I think that the, everybody has in this part of education has some kind of, uh, corners and, and you take one corner or, or the other for just maybe silly and stupid bugs that happens to you. And I just ended up uh, taking this path, but then uh, just a matter of destiny. I gotcha. So you eventually went to college and you studied electronics or uh, what, what uh, degree did you, did you get? I get the mechatronic um, engineering degree. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I went, I went, of course, to college here in Italy, uh, but I passed my first three years in, um, in another operative headquarter of, of my university that wasn't uh, actually in the town, but was in a little, a little town in the, in the, in, in a close state, let's say mm-hmm. close to my hometown it was a three, three hours of a train. And I stayed there for, for three years. And then, um, I did the last two years of the, the master degree here in, in Turin. Gotcha. Let's go back to Hamoun for a second. Did you go into college or did you, you know, do something different? Yeah. So, um, at the, on my last year in, in college or my last year in high school, um, in Canada, you need to get a certain amount of volunteer hours, uh, to graduate. So, um, I decided to start a club. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was called beat a Bateman environmental activist team. And essentially it was a club of students who volunteered after school. Um, and our goal was to transform our school into a gold certified smart school uh, while we were there. So in one year, we took our school from not even being recognized as a smart school uh, to a gold standard smart school. It was a huge accomplishment. Um, I committed over 500 hours, uh, volunteer hours towards the school. Um, we did some amazing things. We installed um, motion detecting lighting. We upgraded to smart uh, heating and air conditioning. We planted uh, hundreds of native trees around the school. We implemented a new waste program. We put up a green wall. Wow. And um, at the end of the year, to my surprise, I had won the uh, Environmental Achievement Award. And uh, I met Justin Trudeau, who's the current prime minister. Uh, and I remember, sh- I remember shaking his hand and saying, you know, you're going to be prime minister one day. And he's like, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, that was a, that was a a really important moment for me because I actually thoroughly enjoyed that club. Um, it was one of the first things I did outside of sports that I actually was excited to, to attend. And with this award came a scholarship. So I attended, uh, Carleton university, um, for a major in economics and uh went all the way to ottawa which is about six hours away from toronto and uh attended university there Hmm. let's go back a little bit to that that club because you said it was something that you really enjoyed why did you have the idea to to make that club and what specifically uh, made you so excited so um me and my friends we were obviously had to find our volunteer hour somewhere and it all started with that search um and the school did provide a list of uh, places or things, clubs that existed. Um, but at the very bottom of the list was this, um, section that said, well, you can create your own club. Uh, it just needs approval from, from the teachers in the school. So we put our brains together and thought kind of what is missing from this list. Um, uh, and we decided that, uh, the environmental club was something that was non-existent and that we felt, um, we could actually make, a a change and not just waste our time. When we come back, you'll get to hear about Hamoun's university experience and why he ultimately decided to drop out to start his corporate career. But before that, here's how you can personally invest in smartbin.io. 
SmartPin is currently raising up to $500,000 at a $6 million valuation cap on WeFunder. The current minimum investment amount is $100 per investor. Funding is currently open but is scheduled to close on April 30th, 2022. But if they hit their maximum funding limit before then, you'll be directed to their waitlist. If you're interested in getting more information, check the show notes below where you can find a link to their funding page. So Hamoon, you went to Carleton University and, and what was that experience like? Yeah, I would say it was a typical um, university experience. Uh, it was the first time I'd lived away from my parents um, and I got to go out in the real world and, and see what it was like. Um, I loved it, uh, but I think ultimately I realized by second year that it wasn't really for me. Um, I mean, looking back, I kind of wished I had finished. So this is where this is coming to. <laughs> um, I dropped out third year. So after I finished my third year, I dropped out. My grades were very, I wouldn't say very good, but pretty good. Um, but, you know, things happen, your, your perspective on life changes. And then third year, I actually dropped out. Um, and I started my corporate career <laughs> at, at 22. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, and that was kind of, that was my university experience. Wow. So that's interesting. So you decided to go into corporate. Um, what made you, what made you do that? I actually, so I started obviously um, dating, dating this girl, uh, one of my ex-girlfriends now. Um, and we were at uh, her house for a Sunday dinner and her dad uh, said, um, I really think you could be a great um addition to our company. It was a corporate printing company, corporate printing in, in Canada, one of the largest. And he said, I think you'd be a great addition to our company. I think you, you have all the things that would make you a great manager eventually. Um, why won't you come for an interview? All I can do is, is guarantee you an interview or the rest is up to you. So I show up to the interview and I sit down and there's a guy named Terry there. I still remember him. Uh, and the first thing he says to me is, okay, you can take off your dad's suit. <laughs> so I take off, I take off this oversized uh, suit jacket, put it on the chair and we have a quick conversation. You know, 30 minutes later, um, I'm hired as business development uh, for the company. Interesting. How'd that work out for you? It was great. I mean, um, I kind of wish that people are forced to go out in the, re the real world and work before they make a decision on what they want to do in university. Um, I learned a lot. I learned like what I now call the, you know, kind of how the train runs. You get to know all the moving pieces of a, of a real business uh, and how they work together and why they're important and what would go wrong without them. So during my one and a half years uh, at this company, I really started to understand, you know, why does HR exist? You know, why is there a marketing team? Why is there a marketing budget? Why is social media important? Why is cold calling important even? Which is the, the worst thing on the planet in my opinion. But, but for them, it was an essential part of their business and was something that I spent a lot of time doing. So um, I really got to understand, you know, what does a business look like when it's uh, operating in generating lots of value. Um, at what point did you get into pool construction? Uh, pool construction was actually a summer job. Okay. So one of my really good friends, his dad owned a company called Pool Doctor. Yeah. And they were paying me $14 an hour cash. Uh, and I was the grunt. So I dug all the holes. I jumped into the pool and uh, with a stethoscope and tried to find where the leaks are and the pipes. Um, but it was an, it was an extremely rewarding job because it was obviously in the summer. Uh, it was very labor intensive. Um, it was a lot of hard work, 12, 14 hour days, but at the end you could crack a beer and jump into the pool and, and, and cool off and then get in the car and go home with a, with a watt full of cash in your pocket. Interesting. You also were a English teacher, um, abroad. Why did you decide to do that? And what was that experience like? The idea of SmartBin was born while I was in Taiwan. So in 2015, um, I dropped everything and went backpacking and ended up uh, kind of 
building my base in Taiwan. Um, and while I was there, um, one of the most lucrative things to do for for um, earning earning an income is teaching English. So I was lucky enough to be a private school teacher for grades one and two, um, and taught these amazing children with the best energy in the world um, how to speak English, and it was it was absolutely uh, life changing. And so you, you said you had the idea for Smartpin. What what was that spark? What what did you see there, or what did you experience that made you think about Smartpin? Yeah. So. Um, Unlike, I guess, places in Canada and the U.S., um, in really densely populated populated areas, there is organically this walking culture. Uh, Andre, I'm not sure how it is in Turin, but um, in Taiwan, in Taipei, which is the capital of Taiwan, it's very densely packed. Everything's densely packed, so you the the uh, you have the ability to walk around the city and uh, not worry about transportation. You can get to places by just walking. Um, and one of the things I noticed while I was walking around was that the city was extremely clean mm -hmm. um, and garbage bins were very hard to find. So what I did was as a um, project to learn how to code in iOS and, and Swift, um, I taught myself how to code uh, an app that I called Bins App that essentially was a map of all 1800 waste and recycling bins in Taipei in the city. And once we mapped it out and launched it, we kind of thought, okay, so what? There's just a map with garbage bins, <laughs> you know? Uh, it was just a it was just a fun project, but we wanted to add some something to it. So we added this feature where if you were walking by this garbage bin and you saw that it was overflowing, you could just press report full, and it would automatically send a message to Taipei government and say, hmm. bin zero eighty one on this intersection has been reported full by this user. Interesting. We'll get more into that, but I would like to uh, understand Andre's career a little bit. And so um, after college, Andre, you, you really got into the startup ecosystem. What do you think uh, made you so interested in, in doing that? Um, I don't know. It was, it was just natural for me. During, uh, during the, college, the college years, I started my very, very first company uh, together with a, um, with a professor there. And, and a couple of friends. And I started a uh, service for 3D printing when 3D printers was just a novelty, and especially in Italy. But then it was so exciting. Also, if it was so, you know, hard, I worked very hard to, to make it working and it didn't work out because of the, of the time to market, basically, and the, the access of the of financing of, these, uh, of this idea. But then, uh, then it was so, I mean, exciting to me that, that mm, I, I just got that that was my, my path for, for the future. And then I, I kept trying to, to, let's say, create something new. So you said it was, it was very challenging. It didn't quite work out, but you were, you were kind of hooked. And so that's um, what got you into, you know, the whole startup ecosystem. Um, after that, what, what was your next, what was your next move? Well, uh, as, as a um, final thesis for, for the master uh, degree, I developed um, a robotic hand for, um, for a project. Basically I did a, um, a robotic hand built uh, out of the 3D printed materials, of course, because I was pretty uh, expert of, of the technology. And so I, then I ended up making um, something that was interesting for the research at the moment. It was a completely low cost, uh, 3D printable robotic arm. So after this, this parenthesis of uh, one year, I started an, another company with, a, with some friends of mine uh, that came to me and saying, uh, we have this idea, we want to realize it. We don't know absolutely how to do that. Of course, it was a uh, hardware. And so I helped them making the, the first prototypes of a, of a glow uh, that was used for making music and enhanced the, the, let's say the experience of the DJ in front of the crowd. So I, I started this, this, uh, this company with this uh, friend of mine, and then this company ended up to, to make it through the uh, Texas program in, uh, in Austin, Texas. So we went there 
and we stayed there for, for, for a while. We did also a Kickstarter campaign. It was pretty successful for such a, um, a crazy idea. So we collected uh, $100,000 uh, and then we delivered after one year after the first 1,000 products. The company was called uh, uh, Remedy. Remedy. Yeah. It was a 3D printed glove. And, and how did it work? It worked uh, thanks to some textile sensors and they can get uh, the, the pressure and the touch of your hand on, on, on surfaces. And they send the, 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 let's say the signal to your devices like your phone or your, uh, your computer through a bracelet. It was like a sort of a smartwatch that was connected to the globe. Hey, are you a founder looking to raise capital? Have you tried all of the traditional methods and have come up short? Well, maybe it's time to try something new. Maybe it's time to raise capital from your customers and your biggest fans. Maybe it's time to try equity crowdfunding. I've personally seen the power of raising money through this process. And frankly, that's why I bring you this podcast. I'm a big advocate. And so if you're interested, get started with your first regulation crowdfunding raise by using my referral code in the description. And better yet, by using this link, you can get $2,500 off your final fundraising fee. So go ahead and give it a try. And then at what point did Scribbit come into this? Because that was a very pivotal moment, I think, in, in your career. Yeah, absolutely. Well, after a while, we discovered that uh, making hardware for, for consumers was, uh, was pretty hard and was uh, expensive. We ended up without money. We tried hard to, to find some, some VCs, but then uh, we didn't make it. So at that point, it was, um, it was open to other opportunities. I met uh, a professor was a, I mean, he's also um, an architect and uh, he's from, from Turin as I am. So I met this professor, he's, he's a professor at MIT and he's the leading uh, professor for the Sensible City Lab. And basically he had this idea of a vertical plotter. Uh, it was a, say a robot, a, a little robot that draws in, uh, on vertical surfaces. So he had this idea, but he never had the, the opportunity or the right manner, say, to take it to the market. So he kind of challenged me on saying, uh, let's see if you can, if you can take it to the market. And I accepted the challenge and uh, together with him, we started screaming. Right. And so Scribbit, it's a, it's a device that goes onto the wall, right? And it has markers that go into the middle and it can draw different designs, words, and um, it's programmable. I've seen some images. It's really neat. Yeah. Um, and so you, you launched on Kickstarter, is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, it was very successful. Um, I think you, you know, uh, sold thousands of them. And so what are some of the lessons that you learned from that um, and that you think, you know, is going to be important for you in, in you know, starting SmartPen? As always, uh, in everyone's life, you keep learning things. And sometimes uh, you make errors and, and those errors uh, are helpful for, for the next, you know, the next experience. So everything makes you experienced for, for the next uh, errors and in order to not repeat uh, them in the future. It happened, of course, with, with Scribbit. So I think that the Kickstarter campaign for Scribbit was successful because I learned a lot as an entrepreneur about the, let's say, the, the Kickstarter uh, campaigns and all the crowdfunding uh, campaigns. I also learned a lot of uh, about how to you know, build a team for, from scratch. Basically, it was very, very helpful. But then I, I kept doing sometimes some, some errors, uh, not just because of me, but maybe because of the, my, my business partners. We did, uh, we did great, but now I'm looking uh, forward to I mean, take all my, my experience, my errors to the, the smart mean. And so Hamoon, um, you were in Taiwan, you know, you had this project that you started and what did you do next? Did you see some type of traction? Yeah. So that, that iOS app that we built, um, 
we were trying to get a, a lot of data. So essentially the idea was to take a smart, make a smart citizen. A smart citizen is someone that can use their phone, engage with the city's like furniture or amenities and help the city run uh, smoother. Um, that project ultimately failed. Um, and we went back to the drawing board and we said, okay, we need to pivot. We need to find something um, that'll solve this problem um, at scale, something that's truly scalable. So, you know, six months down the line, I'm, at, I'm in a Starbucks and I have um, an Arduino maker kit, uh, which is like this hardware maker kit for, for amateurs. Okay. And um, I have all these wires everywhere. And we had this idea that if we could take the sensor, the ultrasonic sensor that is in the back of vehicles. So when you back up, it goes beep, 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 beep. Right. That sensor, we said, if we can take that sensor and put it inside the garbage bins, um, we'll be able to detect how full the garbage bins are and essentially um, take that data point and help the city better manage its waste and recycling, the trucks, so on and so forth. So we built the very first, very first um, uh, set of devices, about 30 of them. We actually didn't use the ultrasonic sensor because it didn't perform as well as we wanted. We actually ended up using a laser sensor. Uh, this laser sensor is super low cost. It goes directly down the center of the bin, um, just as a laser pointer would, and then returns a distance. So this bin is 50% fuller. This bin is 20% fuller. This bin is empty or this bin is 100% full. Um, we 3D printed 30 cases for these sensors that we handmade. Um, and I went to Taipei City Hall, and here's this foreigner that can't speak Mandarin um, with a liaison translator trying to convince the mayor and his team that they should stick these 30 random devices in their garbage <laughs> bins in City Hall. So it was quite an interesting experience. Um, I remember after finishing the meeting being like, you know, there's no way these they're going to let us do this. You know, I, I, only after the meeting, I realized how, how crazy this ask was. Um, but you know, the next week came, comes by and I get a, a call from the mayor's office and he says, let's do it. You know, we approve a 90 day pilot. Um, so our very first project was 30 smart bin sensors, retrofit sensors, um, that we stuck in, uh, basement level one, first floor, second floor and third floor. And I was there on a Saturday. It was a beautiful day out. I had my elbow deep in 30 garbage bins installing these sensors by myself and at these at this time our, our our devices were wi-fi connected and one of the things that they said is we'll, we'll go forward with the pilot but it has to be on its own private network hmm. so i had to buy um four wi-fi sim wi-fi routers so you stick a sim card in it and you can create your own wi-fi network hotspot so i installed these four on every floor you know installed the 30 sensors in the bin and then away we went. We started collecting data. The uh, management team at Taipei City Hall was logging in three times a day to our platform. Um, we had a lot of positive feedback. We learned a lot of things. Uh, a lot of a lot of things we learned from from this pilot. We presented them with a case study, and they later gave us a grant for thirty thousand dollars to take it to the next level. Wow. And then at what point did you two meet um, and, you know, team up together to, to build Smartbin? Yeah, so this is a good story. Um, last March, um, we were accepted. So March 2021, we were accepted to Techstars, uh, Techstars Toronto. Um, so while I was going through the Techstars program uh, in the first month, there's something called Mentor Madness. And essentially you meet with 80 mentors in the Techstars network for 20 minute meetings. And as I went down through this list of mentors, I didn't really find anyone that was, you know, a hardware geek, hmm. you know, a hardware head. And I went on this, almost like we have this LinkedIn for Techstars only people, essentially. Um, and I found Andrea and I contacted our program manager and I said, hey, I have to meet with this guy. I would love for him to eventually be uh, one of our mentors. Met with Andrea. We talked, we chatted. I told him how much I loved Scribbit. I loved his ability to take something from the back of a napkin to full scale commercialization. I asked him to be our mentor and help us as we built uh, the next few uh, products in our development roadmap. And um, after we graduated and 
I found out that Andrea is now in this, you know, uh, this time where he's looking for the next opportunity. I somehow convinced him to to join to join up, um, and uh, we've been very fortunate to have someone with him and his skill set on our team. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic. And Andrea, so what did you see in Hamoon, and what did you see in his idea that made you convinced you wanted to to participate? So um, I have to be honest with you. I, I didn't know the market when Hamoon first uh, talked to me, mm-hmm. but then he was very very convincing at the beginning because. Uh, I got immediately the market opportunity. I'm seeing that's the next thing in that market. And, and we're doing it. We're, we're, we're getting there. I saw also that was the right time, time to market. And then Moon, uh, uh, I mean, he, he's great. I mean, at, at talking with people and making, uh, you know, as a CEO, I think it's, it's very, has all the, the qualities that the CEO has to, to have. And so I, 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 I think that, that I, I met the, the absolutely the, the, the right choice in jumping in with, uh, with him and taking this, uh, this technology to the market. Wow. Yeah. Let's get into the company now. So um, the way I see it, so you have a robot that autonomously will go pick up this trash um, in the commercial spaces. And then that robot knows how much trash is in that bin based on sensors and weight, that robot takes this trash to uh, the back house where it will then eventually be sorted by a robot to make it a quality recyclable. Is, is that right? Is that how, how the whole system works? And can you talk about kind of where you are right now in that process to get to that full scale vision? Yeah, sure. So um, the last two years, we've been working hard on this problem. Um, so far, we have obviously our retrofit sensor. Um, it's been shipped to several customers for pilots. Um, we recently, um, the beginning of last year, launched our smart bin. Um, so basically, our smart bin is the same thing as our retrofit sensor, except it's a, it's the full form factor. Um, so if customers are ready to buy actual waste bins, um, they buy our smart waste bins. And uh, so the retrofit sensor and the smart bin are already existing in the market today. Um, and then obviously paired with that, the data has to go somewhere. So we have a working enterprise grade analytics platform that takes the data and um, visualizes uh, it and, and, and gives sustainability teams and operations teams like janitors um, actionable insight into um, obviously better human performance for now while we're, while we're developing the robot. So we're able to significantly optimize their collection routes. Instead of going to every single bin, we send them a list of the ol- only the bins that they need to go to. So if I'm a janitor at nine o'clock every day, I go around this airport um, with the smart bin system, I get an alert at 845 and it says, hey Hamoon, out of your 30 bins, 15 are only full and here they are in order. And I can go around saying complete, 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 complete in that sense, uh, notification back to the dashboard. Um, so that's what we have working today. Uh, we've been lucky enough to have our, our product at the Googleplex uh, in Silicon Valley um, being piloted. Uh, we've done product demos for both Google and Alphabet. Um, we have a current pilot right now with JP Morgan Chase, uh, the headquarters in New York, 383 Madison. Um, and that's in tandem with Heinz. Uh, so both of those are those are two are some of our larger pilots. Um, and both of the customers that we have pilots with and all the product demos we do, they all know that the robot is coming. And that's kind of what this raise is about. It's what um, Andrea is spending 100% of his time doing uh, is really taking this robot that we've developed so far and preparing it over the next three, four months for a real world uh, pilot, because in this business, it's um, the proof is in the pudding, and um, no one's really going to. Uh, uh, I, I often would like share the example of you know cliff diving into a, into the water. You know, everybody gets to the edge and they all tippy toe and they say, oh, "I don't know, I'm not sure if this is going to be safe. I see some rocks down there, you know." And then finally, someone ju- jumps, and they're down there with a big smile on their face. And then everybody else jumps. So these pilots are very similar to that. We have to really gather the data. We have to show the proof. We have to generate the case study library. 
so that when we when we are ready and this thing is ready for a commercial integration, we can say, here's you know two three pilots that we did, and here are the results. So that's kind of the next six to eight months uh, in terms of what we're focusing on. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the show. But before we hear about SmartBin's value proposition, I thought you might be interested in hearing a few stats about the company. SmartBin.io is a Techstars portfolio company. SmartBin.io has a patent pending in the United States and in Canada. And SmartBin's technology is being piloted by a few companies like Google and JP Morgan Chase. In 2020, SmartBin.io generated $11,096 of revenue and had a net loss of $27,716. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. What I'm curious about is, you know, it sounds really exciting to create a real life Wally, a, a trash picking robot, but why do customers really care about this? Why do you think um, they're going to, you know, pay for your service? Okay, so this is all um, alleviating a industry-wide short labor shortage okay across canada the us and europe um and we know this because we're the ones having conversations with with these customers um we're asking them what what problems they're currently facing turns out no one wants to be a janitor anymore no one wants to pick up trash and um the robot is essentially a product that we're developing to alleviate this pain point uh, that the customer is currently facing. And me and uh, Andrea both, we believe that these jobs, um, regardless of labor shortages, uh, are going to be some of the first replaced by robotics. Mm. And um, if you say, oh, well, this is going to take away jobs from uh, Americans or, or, or Europeans, um, we, we believe that um, these are low-skilled jobs and the jobs that we'll create will be high-skilled jobs. And today, if you want to build a house, you don't hire 30 people with shovels to build, to, to, to dig a hole. You hire an excavator. Excavator comes, digs a hole in one day, and job's done. So we believe the same thing is happening with these low-skilled jobs. And um, the, the labor shortage is really, from the customer point of view, uh, something that's um, uh, really being asked for. And this robot, at the end of the day, is going gonna, is gonna to be uh, about, I would say, a third of the cost of having two employees doing the same task. It sounds like the cost savings is really the uh, value prop that you bring to these customers. Um, I think another thing that you mentioned on your funding site is the sustainability aspect of it, providing high quality recycling. Um, recycling is important. I think a lot of people understand that. But why does that matter? Um, talk about the quality of recycling uh, material and why that matters. Yeah, so uh, I mean, now that you've kind of learned a little bit about both of our pasts and and you know you know what what things um, are we're passionate about. When we started this company um, from the very beginning, our our um, motives were to make a positive impact. Uh, we're a for profit profit business, but we really wanted to have a positive impact on waste and recycling. Um, however, what we've learned over time is that unfortunately, sustainability teams in these commercial buildings don't really have purchasing power, number one, um, and they don't have um, the, the, I would say, the ability to really implement a, a program without a, a large financial incentive. So we have made sure um, that we have built uh, inherently into these products financial incentives to get the buy-in because we want to achieve the greater goal of sustainability. So without having a financial incentive, we're not able to achieve our, our goals of sustainability. And when we talk about sustainability, the impact that we're trying to make is the recycling system is broken. Uh, in 2018, China enacted uh, something called the Sword Policy Act. The Sword Policy Act essentially was a massive door being shut um, uh, in China, and they said that we're no longer accepting the world's recyclables. The US the Can and Canada and Europe were shipping a majority of their recyclables in shipping containers to China across the world, and the recycling was being graded and sorted there, turned back into the products you probably buy on Alibaba or AliExpress. 
So in 2018, China said, hey, this recycling, we don't want it anymore. It's too dirty. It's costing us too much money. Keep it in your own countries. So obviously, Europe, Canada, and the US, they're all scrambling to build this new infrastructure that's required. And the main problem of why recycling doesn't work and why it's broken comes down to two things. Number one, recycling contamination. That's when you throw a banana peel in a plastic recycling bin or when you throw a glass uh, bottle into the landfill or if you throw a glass bottle into only plastic bin. That has to be hand sorted. When you go to a material recovery facility, there are 30, 40 humans there with gloves on, literally going down a conveyor, picking this waste apart to try to increase the quality of this recycling. Because once it gets bailed and gets to the end of the line, if it's not good quality, A, no one's going to buy it, and B, it's no way going to compete with raw plastic pellets that are coming uh, uh, clean and, and ready to be used. The second problem, that of uh, uh, crux of the industry, is the cost. The cost to manage waste and re recycling compounds. It, it compounds as it goes down the supply chain. And if the cost of a bale of clean, A-grade recycled plastic is not at least somewhat competitive with raw plastic, there's no way we're going to build a circular economy. There's no way that we're going to take these raw materials and actually turn them into something. Because a corporation whose um, number one motive is to earn more money for their shareholders isn't going to buy recycled plastic if it's 300% more expensive. So our company is trying to take commercial buildings and create a system where commercial buildings in North America output A plus high quality plastic that's and plas glass and aluminum that doesn't require sorting and the rest we can it can go through the supply chain it can go to these material recovery facilities we can potentially even create a real time commodities market for these bales there are tons of opportunities but the end result is all of a sudden all the waste and recycling that's leaving these buildings is a great and so Let's talk about that back end. So you have these robots, they take um, this trash to the back end, and then you're going to have a sorter. Now, is this also going to be autonomous? So uh, to a lot of people's surprise today, places like the Googleplex, Facebook HQ, JP Morgan Chase HQ, wh wherever you look, um, these large commercial buildings, they actually hire two to three people in the back of house to sort through garbage. Okay. So right now they're paying for human labor to put on gloves and sort through the trash that's collected in these facilities because they will get charged for contaminated recycling. Mm. And more importantly, if they get graded on their sustainability, that's public. That's basically public shaming. They're saying they get graded and they're publicly shamed. This corporation, their waste diversion score is 55%, which is really bad for their sustainability teams. So the recycling sorting technology already exists. It's not something we're inventing. So this sorting technology is already being implemented in material recovery facilities. However, by the time it gets to material recovery facilities, you're dealing with hundreds of tons of, of, of uh, recyclables. And one robotic sorter in this massive facility is just not going to be able to uh, create the, this amount of, the amount of impact that we're looking for. It basically ends up being the same as human sorters. In a commercial building, we're building a shrunk down version of it where it would exist in the back of house. And there is an employee that works in the back of house. And once the robots drop off the bins on trays, the employee takes that recycling, puts it in a hopper, it goes down a conveyor, and a robotic system will use computer vision to remove any contaminants. Interesting. How about your business model? Um, how do you make money um, from, from your robots and from this sorting process? Yeah, so one of the most exciting things is that because we went with the low-tech sensor route, um, we have a quite low-cost sensor technology uh, and scalable technology. So when it comes to the smart bins, we're able to compete with a rubber-made dumb bin. So um, insert our technology, it's a $40, $50 uh, cost of goods add-on all of a sudden you're the best waste bin money can buy. 
for that price point. So we're happy to compete uh, with the industry averages uh, in the waste receptacle market. Uh, for our robotics, um, we actually lease them. Uh, so we're planning on charging uh, a monthly lease fee to have our robots. Um, and obviously this includes maintenance. So we've estimated a good robot will cost roughly 300 to 500 US a year in maintenance costs. A bad robot will cost, you know, 750 to 1,000. So we plan on having a leasing price just as you would an employee um, and you have the robot just as you would have an employee, except it doesn't get sick, doesn't take breaks and doesn't ask for Christmas off. <laughs> we've covered a lot um, in this podcast um, from your upbringing to, you know, where your company is now, but is there anything that we missed that you would like to tell the audience um, about your company, about yourself and um, uh, about Sparpin? Um, yeah, I think uh, we plan on taking this to the, this to the end. Uh, I think me and Andrea, I mean, he's 32, I'm 31. Um, we have a lot of energy. Um, our goal is to take this to IPO uh, if we can. Um, so um, we obviously do have an exit strategy. Um, but, but our main exit strategy is to, to take this thing and, 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 uh, take it to the public markets and make it as big as we can. So the final question, and it's, um, it's, it's for both of you and, and both of you are no strangers to entrepreneurship. You've had in multiple companies, you've, you know, been through ups and downs. Um, but in your opinion, what do you think is more important in entrepreneurship? Is it more important to be courageous or intelligent? I think it's more important to be courageous. Uh, so intelligence you can acquire. Um, if we were courageous, we wouldn't be going after a old dinosaur industry of waste and recycling, um, which, which, is a, which is a tough industry. Um, and I would also add that, you know, even being a res resilient, uh, so courageous and resilient, um, and and really staying alive and not giving up and uh, sticking true to to your your beliefs uh, of the future of the world. How about you, Andre? What do you think? I mean, I think it's it's a very good question. Um, I would say both is uh, if it is possible. So courageous and intelligent. But I agree with them that. Being courageous is the main uh, quality for an entrepreneur to, to succeed. I mean, you have to, sometimes you have to be crazy and not to think about what, uh, what it's going to happen if, uh, if you're going to take some, some kind of crazy path. This has been an episode of Seeking Startups. I'm your host, Maxim Davis, and thank you for listening to the whole show. Make sure to subscribe and share this episode. Once again, if you're interested in investing in this company, you can find a link to their fundraising page in the description below. Before I let you go, if you're a founder who is interested in getting highlighted on the show, email me at maxim at seekingstartups.com. Thank you. And until next time, keep investing in the future.